In thy gracious holy name. God bless you, and you may be seated. <coughs> I genuinely pray that this session will be worthy of your precious time uh, during this camp, during this service today. Amen. Praise God. Sometimes we can be sitting right beside someone that's going through a great battle and never know it because preachers have a tendency to cover their sackcloth with velvet when they go to these type of meetings. And they're still wearing it, but somehow they cover it up. Amen. I went to a general conference one time and went with a friend, Brother Poling from Akron, Ohio, and uh, and everyone remembers me, I guess, because of my size, and everyone come along knew my name, and we was walking from the motel, which was real close to the to the auditorium for the first service, and about three people passed me. How are you, Brother Cole? And every one of them, I said, great. And I was going through torment. <laughs> Finally, I said, <laughs> I was preaching. For, for every one I preached in, I was preaching two out. <laughs> and it had been for about a year. <laughs> and I turned to Brother Poling. I said, you know, Poling, I've been here 20 minutes and lied three times. <laughs> <laughs> but the Lord's able to touch us. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. I do do need to tell the rest of the story of at least one thing that I mentioned yesterday. I've had so many so many questions as to what I did about this sister that I mentioned that I <laughs> that I uh, give such a rake. <laughs> uh, well, they want to know if I apologized to her. Yes, I did. I apologized to her because of the method that I use. Not for the truth, but for the method. And it took her one solid year to forgive me. <laughs> Look again at the 20th chapter of Acts. We're looking at the Apostle Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian brethren. Yesterday we talked about some of the obvious things of the apostolic ministry of opening new areas to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ under the anointing and the power of God to perform miracles, etc., to be used of God and the gifts of the Spirit and this type of thing. Uh, but the main thing that I want to do this week is to look at some of those things that is in apostolic manner that is not obvious, that is not the uh, common concept of what a uh, an apostle ought to do, or the experiences that he that he has, looking and proving these things by the word of God. 
Yesterday we looked at the very first uh, phase, uh, phrase of the 19th chapter, and I'd like to look at the, uh, the 19th verse. I'd like to look at that again today. Praise the Lord. Let me begin with verse 18 again. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with humility of mind. And I spent much time on talking to us about the importance of humility and not just some kind of a facade or some kind of a uh, false pseudo-front that we can put on. And we can do that, but something that is genuine and real. And the real humility is a condition of the heart, not the outward appearance. If we're going to do apostolic ministry, we have to be very positive and very, very bold. People have to have confidence that we know what we're doing. But in our hearts, in our hearts, we know that we are totally dependent on God and on the touch of God in our lives. Not just to mention a name, but uh, let me choose a name that's uh, not a resident of Louisiana for an example. One of my dear friends, one of my dearest friends, Brother Robert Mitchell, he's as bold as a lion. He'll walk up and down your aisles and prophesy and lay hands upon the saints. And by the time he gets through, your entire congregation thinks that you've told him every problem you got in the church because he's dealt with it before he, before he leaves. On the other hand, in my opinion, he is one of the most humble men in the United Pentecostal Church. It's the humbleness of his heart, not his outward appearance. Praise the Lord. I believe that is true humility. And uh, actually, our reservation in not, in not doing what the Lord may speak to our hearts to do in an apostolic manner, and we hesitate, that can be a form of pride in protecting our reputation. Praise the Lord. Uh, I don't expect you to amen me real quick on that, but we can... We can think about it. <laughs> praise, praise the Lord. I have experienced in my ministry that the first thought that I have is from God. The second thought I have, which follows very quickly, just in split seconds, is from myself and from my flesh. And the third is from the devil. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes we have to be just a little bit impulsive to to operate in the realm of the Spirit. But you have to be humble to do that. Or you'll be worried about your reputation all the time in case you're wrong. Well, we're all wrong sometimes because the Apostle Paul said, I see through a glass darkly. Sometimes we think we see people and we see trees. You know, <laughs> and you will make mistakes. There's only one thing to do when you make a mistake. Don't quit. Just say, hey, we missed it. We'll get it tomorrow. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let me go on 
won't dare spend too much time with review here, but let's look uh, a little bit farther here. Serving the Lord with all humility. Humility being a very vital part of the apostolic ministry. Humility of mind. And here is something else I want to talk to you about today. And with many tears, with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying of weight of the Jews, the so-called religionists of that day. And that's what I want to talk to you about in this hour, is tears that the ministry, apostolic ministry, has to suffer. I propose that there are three types of tears that we all need to suffer. First of all is the tears of intercession. And secondly, tears of compassion. Tears of compassion. And thirdly, tears of being wounded and hurt, even in the church. It will happen to us in the ministry, and it can be very severe and suffocating of our spirit. And I believe that the Apostle Paul suffered all of these things. Let me read on, darping down to verse 29 uh, of the same chapter. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, also of your own selves, people that he called friends, people that he thought was close to him and loved him and embraced his teaching. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. I am persuaded that one of the most important things that we have in our walk with God is the ability to repent of our sins. Where would we be today if it wasn't for the fact that we can call upon the name of God and say, Lord, forgive me of this sin? I don't mean just repentance before receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost and beginning our walk, but I have found that through my ministry, even after becoming somewhat well-known, there's been days that I've had to ask God to forgive me, to have mercy upon me, and to touch me and to change my character and my life and my, my temperament. Amen. And uh, thank God for His holy touch in our lives. Are you glad for it today? Let's just lift our hands and thank the Lord for it. Uh, I worship you, Lord Jesus, uh, and I adore you, Lord Jesus. Uh, glory to thy master's holy name. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians after this time, and he was already in prison in Rome. He wrote to the Ephesians. Uh, we, we dealt with some of those things yesterday of the necessity of working together as a unit and as a body, how that various parts of the body are 
more sensitive than others. So it is in the kingdom of God. The apostle wrote to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter that we might rise above lasciviousness, that we might not fall into the trap of sin. We must protect each other. We must protect each other. We've got to protect each other, or there will be a trap that we will fall into and fail God. The apostle also wrote to the Ephesian church in the sixth chapter and verse 12, a familiar text. He said, For we wrestle not against, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers. Would you say principalities with me? And say powers with me. And powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Would you say world with me? And also against the spiritual wickedness in high places. We have principalities. We have powers. We have the rulers of this world and in high places. And uh, I have taught in this uh, state many times on intercessory uh, prayer. And I don't want to spend much time on that. But let me just point out one, let me remind you of one little thing. There is an invisible satanic system that we cannot see with our own eyes, only on rare occasions. We've heard testimony already in this camp of actually seeing some physical appearance of demonic power. I am persuaded that it follows political boundaries. Satan most certainly is confined to this earth. That makes me want to be an astronaut. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But he is confined. He is the prince, power, and king of this earth, controlling. Amen. He has been able through the centuries to be able to control men, sometimes in universal or in earthly, uh, reaching the entire globe unto empires. He's been able to do that. He intends to do it again under the rulership and leadership of the Antichrist. And the symbol in the revelation of the false world government is the seven-headed beast in the 13th chapter of Revelations. The reason that there are seven heads is because there's already been six world kingdoms, empires. There is the Assyrian Empire and the Egyptian and then the Babylonian Empire and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, six. And then he will do it again through the Antichrist. I believe that Satan himself, a fallen angel, will actually incarnate a man just as God incarnated Jesus Christ to rule the seventh world empire. And the world and men have had this to deal with. But we're in a glorious time now. We talk about the power of the devil but actually the power of the devil is broken at this time. Ever since the church, ever since as long as the church is in this earth, his power is subdued and his power is broken. Hallelujah. He does have power. We don't want to just take him for granted.
but we can deal with him. I want you to know we have power over the devil. His most important power is uh, our ignorance of him, if you'll excuse me for being so blunt, is our ignorance of him and knowing just how weak he really is. I heard someone preaching the other day, and he made the statement that we've got to be united because the power of the devil throughout the whole world is united. That is not true. They hate each other as much as they hate us. The kingdom of Satan is divided. We're in the feet and toes of the image, and his kingdom is divided. And uh, I believe that his power follows political boundaries. That's the reason why you can have great revival in some areas. And uh, then you just cross the political boundary, and it seems that you can't get to first base. We have to conquer spirits, powers, invisible kingdoms that rule over local authorities. The word principality is an old English word, which in Louisiana would be translated parish, a small political power. You have principalities. And in England, if you were uh, talking, uh, if we speak of the Queen of England, we say the Queen of England or the government of the British Empire. But in England, it's the powers that be. If they were talking to you about it, they would speak of the powers that be. That's old English for national rulership. So you have uh, principalities and national, and then it comes to the world, the darkness of the world, and then high places, the seat and throne of Satan himself. Amen. But let me remind you that Satan Though he was a glorious, magnificent, uh, uh, physical revelation, not physical, but a revelation of the glory of God, he is, in fact, limited to an angel. He is equal to Michael and Gabriel in some areas. Michael being the warrior with the sword. Gabriel being the messenger that comes with the message. The reason Gabriel couldn't get to Daniel in the 10th chapter of Daniel is because he is not a warrior. And Michael came and joined him to work with him and to subdue him. Then Gabriel could come. But Lucifer is not a warrior either. You mean, Brother Cole, that he's not a fighter? Oh, yes, we can all fight, but we may not be fighters. Anybody can pull the trigger of a pistol, but you may not be a soldier. There is a difference. And Lucifer is not even a soldier. He was the beauty of God, covered with all of the jewels, and, and his pipes within him, his voice was perfect. His most important tool is his eloquence, the ability to speak. You know, words are so powerful, but if you get one single word, it can just destroy the effect. If you get one single word wrong, or say it wrong, or just get the tone wrong, get your voice too high, too low, but if just somehow through eloquence you can say exactly the right words in the right way, 
at the right moment, it becomes a tool that will not just move one man, but millions of men. Winston Churchill was able to move his nation to great victory, and he never shot one single bullet. He never pulled one trigger, but it was with his voice and with his personality and his words, and that is the power of Satan, is to talk to us, to frighten us, to confuse us. He can interject thoughts into our minds. Amen. But I want you to know, if we can figure all of that out, we don't have to be afraid of him. We can have power over him. Hallelujah. I know you all got my tape from the general conference. Brother Tenney told me he sent it to you. But let me repeat one thought that I made in that general conference message this past year, and that is proving the, the vulnerability of Satan. You don't have to be afraid of him. I'm tickled to death when I realize my opposition is Satan. Because you can cast, you can cast Satan out, but you can't cast flesh out. I remember one time in Indonesia, uh, uh, not Indonesia, but uh, uh, Salon. It's called Sri Lanka now. We went to a church, and about the time I start to preach, why this very everybody was sitting on the floor, and the ladies were dressed in beautiful, long, colorful Indian saris, and uh, they looked lovely with their long black hair, and uh, everybody was sitting on the floor, and uh, I, I got up one day just to talk against the devil, <laughs> and all of a sudden. This uh, lovely lady, she was about 20 years old, I guess, a young woman, very beautiful, fell over on the floor stiffer than a tuba six. <laughs> and uh, those brethren, and I don't mean to ridicule them, the things are so different there now since Brother Prince Matthias is there. Things have changed miraculously, really. He's doing a great job and has had a profound impact upon that nation. But in those days, the little handful of preachers, just just a very few preachers, was there, and they all considered themselves devil caster outers. <laughs> and uh, they just uh, the interpreter and everybody just forgot that I was in the world, and they and people just shot back to the wall like uh, like you had uh, I don't know what, but they just uh, shot back to the wall and left that girl in the middle of the floor by herself. And those preachers started running. If it wasn't so, um, you know, it could have been hilarious if it wasn't so serious, you know. But those preachers would run at her, and they would pray over her, and then they would run back because they were afraid. <laughs> they were terrified. <laughs> and just in a few minutes, it was so hot, no air conditioning, and it was so hot, their, their clothes were just saturated with their perspiration. <laughs> and, and, and I wasn't, uh, I hadn't read this uh, uh, text yet, you know, in those days. And Brother Tenney and some of them has worked on me till I'm very sweet anymore. But used to, I'd be, I was pretty outspoken. And uh, I tapped that assistant general superintendent of Ceylon on the shoulder. I said, did you invite me here? 
He said, yes, Brother Cole. I said, what did you take meaning over for then? And that's the way I used to operate, but I'm so sweet anymore, you know. <laughs> Hardly worth a nickel anymore. <laughs> and he apologized. I said, this sister, I want you to just have several of the ladies just to pick her up and take her in this room back here. And they did. And she was just as stiff as a tuba sex. About six of those women picked her up and carried her in the room. And I told the interpreter, I said, Now, you interpret every word that I say exactly. Don't edit nothing. Repeat me. Everything I say, repeat me. And went in there with several. I said, Now, this sister is very beautiful, and she's wanting attention. She is not possessed with the devil. This is flesh. Now, there's one way to deal with this. Now, you are going to leave her in here, and he's interpreting all this, and we're going to leave her in here, and we're going to lock the door, and we're going to leave her at least two days without food, and she'll quit this. And just as soon as I said that, she went, oh, she come to just like you had snapped your finger. <laughs> that wasn't devil possession. That was flesh. I'm tickled to death when it's a devil. Flesh, you have to educate. <laughs> Lock them up in rooms. <laughs> I don't do that anymore, is <laughs> I was dead serious, by the way. <laughs> Hallelujah. But we can cast the devil out. Five thousand devils. This is the point I want to repeat that you've already heard me say. I want to repeat it. Five thousand devils I was possessed in the one called Legion. Jesus came along and cast them out. And they went into two thousand swine. And they committed suicide. They were suicidal devils. They wanted to kill that man while he was unsaved. But five thousand of them couldn't do it. Couldn't kill one unsaved man. Well, they like to make us think they're so tough. You cast devils out of somebody, and they're tearing themselves and frothing at the mouth, and you're not casting one or two devils out. You're casting thousands of devils out, thousands of them. And the devil will speak to you in an eloquent way and say, you cast only one out. Look how you had to work and labor and sweat just to get rid of one of us. There's millions of us. He's a liar. I can handle a man of any time. <laughs> and that's not mercy. I just know that he that's within me is greater than he that's in the world. His only ability is to speak eloquently, beautifully. His voice is perfect. He'll get you so crossways with your church and with your brethren and everything else. That's his power. And we do, and they do control areas. But one single Holy Ghost filled person, woman or man, can conquer a whole satanic system for a whole principality. 
for a whole providence. Amen. For a whole paradise. One single human being can, can bind the whole mess of them. Hallelujah. Someone might say, Brother Cole, aren't you afraid to talk like that? Absolutely not. I've talked these things here before, and forgive me for repeating them, but I, I've heard so much talk about the devil since I've been down here. I'm about to get mad. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Here's my notes that I used in your conference in 1981, right here. I just brought them along. They're getting old. I wrote those notes 23 years ago in Thailand. But we have power over him. Can you say praise the Lord? And through the tears of intercession, through intercession, we can gain victory. That doesn't mean everybody in your parish is going to get saved, but it means everybody can that wants to. He has to turn them loose. He can no longer control. And when someone wants to come to God, they can come to God. Can you say praise the Lord? Hallelujah. I must not spend any more time on that. Tears. I'm sure that the Apostle Paul knew how and participated in intercessory prayer in opening new areas in particular. Amen. If you're going into a new area where there's no church, and it is a political boundary, as a parish. I don't know if there's a parish in Louisiana that doesn't have a church or not, a good thriving church. Uh, even little struggling churches will not mean, does not mean that devil has been conquered. Uh, but if there is a thriving church, there cannot be a thriving church unless the satanic system has been conquered. In any of your cities where you have thriving churches, where there's revival, you count on it. The devil system, satanic system is conquered and controlled. That don't mean they won't make their visits and try to re-enter at your weak points and at your weak times and your discouraging times. But just run them off in Jesus' name. Don't talk to them. Don't talk to those devils. I was with someone the other day that asked, asked the devil his name. He lied to you. What are you asking questions for? He lied. Thomas, shut up! Don't want to know their name. I don't even want to know your name. Just get out of here in Jesus' name. This is not uh, foolish, brethren. You can do it in Jesus' name. Do it in the name of Jesus. But we can do it. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and praise the Lord. Blessed be thy holy name. Blessed be thy holy name, Jesus. Blessed be thy holy name, Jesus. Tears of compassion. This is something that we as ministers must not lose. Usually when the Lord calls us to preach, it's because, it's because of our tremendous compassion for souls. Let me be very brief on this point. Jesus is our perfect example. We must not let those tears of compassion get away from us. And we can suffer temporary burnout and all of those things that are normal to human bodies. We were not designed to carry these kind of loads. We were not designed to carry 
these tremendous burdens that we are. And our bodies will get sick, and we will get burned out. And we were designed to live in the Garden of Eden without any problems and uh, just taking care of the horses and cows. Praise God. But we've ended up taking care of a lot of things. And our bodies are not designed for that, and we can become very tired. I remember one brother came into the church in Parkersburg, and uh, he had ten years of eight years of college, and he was a uh, a Church of Christ former Church of Christ preacher, and uh, through a miraculous move of the Holy Ghost, both he and his wife came in and received the Holy Ghost, and he became very interested in the work of God because of his past experiences now that he had the Holy Ghost and was baptized in Jesus' name. And one day I got a desperate, desperate call on my pager uh, telling me to rush to him, that he he didn't know what was wrong with him, that he was at such and such a uh, intersection at a telephone booth. And so I rushed over there, and when I got there, his car was parked near the telephone booth. And when I looked in the car, he was slid down under the steering wheel, gasping for his breath. So I opened the door on the passenger side, and thinking that maybe he had had a heart attack, I said, What is the matter with you, brother? And uh, he said, Oh, Brother Cole, and he was just gasping for his breath. He said, I asked the Lord to let me carry your burden for one day. And I'm just suffocating. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, man. <laughs> I tell you, we need help with what we carry around. We need help with what we carry around in our hearts and in our lives. But it's very easy for us to become a professional preacher and go through an act. You all have preached on it, and I'm not going to spend much time with it. Just let me mention it today. Brother Cole, how about yourself? Oh, it is something that I have recently fought. I have traveled. I have pushed. I have gone. I ministered. Brother mentioned last night, uh, but I've had to grit my teeth recently to do it. God bless your hearts. We can let this get away from us if we're not careful. We, we must not let it get away from us. Tears of compassion. We must not. We must not. Those that sing, they must not just entertain us. They must not. They must worship God. They must minister to the congregation. The preacher must not just preach sermons. We must not just make a living. Please don't raise your hand. Of course not. But how many times have we found ourselves in a situation that if it wasn't for the fact that our living was totally dependent on the ministry, we would quit? Yes. What would I do? God, I've been preaching ever since God, high school. What would I do? I guess I could pump gasoline. What else would I do? But God forbid that I ever fall in the trap of just preaching because I've got to feed my family. Jesus, 
Jesus. Let's lift our heads and worship the Lord together. I worship you, Lord Jesus. I adore you, Lord Jesus. I praise thy master's holy name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Apostle Paul suffered great hurt. Can you imagine someone as great as the Apostle Paul? So educated, so exalted in every way. He was, uh, he was dependent on the Lord. But I'm telling you, he was educated. He would have made something of himself in the world. He could have existed in the world with the best of them. And, uh, and all of these things, writing 13 books of the New Testament, one of the most exalted, the only one that could possibly compare with him, would be the Apostle Peter, who had the keys to the kingdom of heaven as a gift of God in his life. Yet he had people to forsake him and to leave him, to rise up against him, his own converts. Now, there was those that fought him that never received the truth, but obviously there were those that were baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, that would rise up against the apostle Paul, if you please. Break away from him. Paul splits from his works. Divide his works. And these things can be extremely hurtful. They really can. Amen. But there's something we need to look at, brethren. If there was ever a time that we need to be each other's friend, it is today. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I live in an area surrounded by 13 United Pentecostal churches. And surrounded, uh, let me make my whole statement before it's unfortunate. But <laughs> I am surrounded by 13 UPC churches and many independent churches and of other oneness organizations, probably 25 apostolic churches in my county. And there's only two pastors in the whole county that would let one of my saints come to his church and call me the next day and tell me they were there. That's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. My particular policy is, you know, there's extremes. There are those pastors that will just absolutely thrash some other pastors, saints, half to death if they walk into their service. I don't think that's the will of God. Maybe they need to be there. Saints have got to save themselves sometimes, you know. And sometimes they can't get what they need where they're at. And there are reasons for moving. Sometimes there are real personality clashes and all of these things and uh, so forth. Uh, and uh, there are those that when somebody visits from another church and shows up in, 
in their Sunday night service, they will literally thrash them from the pulpit or maybe lesser uh, punishment. I don't think that's the will of God. Neither do I think it's the will of God to call on them to sing and to testify and to cuddle them and to take them out to Shonies after church and put your best foot forward. I don't think that's the will of God either. I'll tell you what I think to be the will of God is, if they hit your altar, minister to them. But unfortunately, this does not always happen. And we have people moving and splits take place. It's always amazing how home missionaries get a burden to open a new church a mile and a half from some church that just had a bunch of saints leave. Hello, hallelujah, amen, glory to God. Makes it impossible for us to discipline somebody. I had a bunch of young men in my church that were in adultery and immorality, and I knew it. They were musicians. They were capable people. They were influential people. Some of them were songwriters, brother. With Some of them were songwriters. And I had to deal with that. But I can't tell the whole church, hey, these guys are in adultery. I couldn't prove it. The Holy Ghost made me to know it. And I tried to deal with them, tried to change them. They didn't want to change. They chose, chose to got angry with me. Believe it or not, in modern days, they drove past my house and threw eggs against my house till I had to have my whole house repainted. They took paint and wrote on the glass doors of the front of my church, Fat Cole thinks he's God. I don't think I'm God, but I'm old tiny enough to take a stand against sin. They wouldn't take discipline, so they went just five miles away from me. And guess where I put him? On his platform. And one year later, he totally destroyed. They totally destroyed that minister and 75% of that congregation. Well, did you tell that pastor? No, I didn't tell him. He didn't ask. He didn't ask, so I didn't tell him. Folks, these are days that we're going to have to help each other. Can you say amen? The Scripture says in 1 John, 1 John, one of my most favorite scriptures, beginning with verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other, another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. I wonder if the word fellowship here is a key situation. We like to say that our sins are forgiven. But are they forgiven if we take away the fellowship? I'm not telling you that's the interpretation of this scripture. I'm just throwing it out there for you to think about 
and meditate on. I believe fellowship one with another is, is paramount in this Scripture for this to work for us. We need it. I need it. I know that you need it. We need to be able to call upon God and God take away our sins. Can you say amen? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We have got to lean upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. It's so easy for us to become bitter towards our brother. Really, we can become so bitter when things happen. And if something has never happened to you, it will probably before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your brother, your sister, somebody is going to hurt you. And the world cannot hurt us. They can annoy us. They can disturb us. But your brother can hurt you. Your brother can really genuinely hurt you. Praise God. I know. We can be so hurt. We become so bitter. But I tell you, it's, it's so important that we be able to forgive. We've got to be able to forgive. Oh, there will be tears. You cry the whole night long. You cry all day long. You cry for weeks and months sometimes of the things that happen to you in the work of God. I wish it wasn't that way, but for some reason or another, God has allowed it to be that way. Amen. But we have got to learn how to forgive. Jesus gave this parable. Let's look at it quickly. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 21, Then came Peter unto him and said, Lord, how long shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Till seven times Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. I, I really don't know exactly what that means. The only thing I can uh, come, come up with it, it means that every time they ask you to forgive them, we have got to forgive. Seventy times seven in one day, one 24-hour day. Maybe he was meaning a day with the Lord is a thousand years. We don't, we don't live. We don't live that long. So it must mean a 24-hour day. The only way we can, uh, the only possible interpretation that I can see is that every time your brother asks you to forgive him, we have got to somehow find it in our hearts to forgive him. Let me read on. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven like unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one brought unto him, which owned him ten thousand talents. In modern terms of money, this is approximately two hundred and sixty-two million eight hundred thousand dollars. Almost two hundred and sixty-three million dollars that he owed. But for much as he had not paid, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and his children, and all that he had, and payment be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of the servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him his debt. But notice this. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, 
which owed him a hundred pence, fifteen dollars. Fifteen dollars. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat and to choke him to death, saying, Pay me this, this that thou owest. And his fellow servant said exactly the same thing, did exactly the same thing, and fell down on his, at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison. He'd just been forgiven a debt of $263 million, and for a debt of $15, he will not be merciful. and cast him into prison. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all thy debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servants, even as I had pity on thee? God bless your hearts. We've all used this text to preach on, and we have preached it as we have come to the Lord with this tremendous, humongous debt. My sins, there's no way I could have paid for them. It was a humongous debt. There's no way that I could work a lifetime and give to the work of God every penny I've ever made if there was no need for any living taken out of it to pay for my debt. No way! And I had to cast myself on the mercy of the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me this sin. I cannot pay it. I cannot pay this debt. And the Lord forgave me. And then what if my brother offends me? What if my brother offends me? And he says, forgive me, I did you wrong, and I fail to forgive him. Not an impossible situation, not something that I couldn't forgive him for. It was not the end of the world. He didn't kill me. He didn't murder me. He didn't murder my wife. <sighs> something that was much less than my own sin. And we carry these grudges in our hearts. We've got to learn how to forgive. And how important is it? Let me read on. Maybe it's more important than we realize to forgive our brother. He said, Shouldest thou not also have compassion for thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due him. He reinstated his debt of $263 million. His debt was reinstated. Now look at the last statement of the Lord. So likewise, everybody say likewise. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if from your heart you forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. What does that mean? That means, I believe, that if my brother offends me, and he asked me to forgive him, and I cannot forgive him, then my Lord 
reinstate my debt of sin upon me. That's how serious it is. Jesus said, let's quote it, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Unfortunately, so many times that's where we stop and where we lose the familiarity with what Jesus said here. Several more verses are in red print. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I have got to forgive men and women that hurt me and harm me. When they say, forgive me, I have got to forgive them or my own sin will be placed upon my own head again, the debt that I owed. We live in a pressured world. We live in a world where we're taught competition and competitiveness from the day we're born. From the day we're born, our mama starts comparing us to every kid in the church. And uh, we can do it a little bit better. We talk a little bit quicker. We walk first. And on and on and on. It goes through school, even in our Christian schools. There's so much competition. Everything's competitive to see who is the best. And sometimes we bring that right on into the church. Amen. And we become competitive with each, with, with each other, comparing ourselves with each other, striving for positions. I have been representative for Brother Urshan on many occasions. And district conferences, and it's not something that is common, but even in some districts where there is just open political campaigning for positions in the church, amen, and we can, uh, we can just be overwhelmed by all of these things. We can become so egotistical that our victory can be stolen. Can you say amen? Recently in Charleston, I've been teaching on the book of Esther. On Sunday morning, I always take a book of the Bible and go through it. Brother Greer urged me to use it here in this uh, conference, but after prayer, I didn't uh, feel that I should. But there's a lot of rich things in the book of, uh, of Esther. One of them is of Haman. The Scripture says in chapter 3, of Esther, after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Halmitha, the Agatite, and advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. He was second in command for the whole Medo-Persian Empire. 
But there was one little Jew, a poor man, laying at the gate that would not salute him. One single man out of a whole empire would not salute him. And it so aggravated him, so annoyed him, that he was filled with hatred and revenge. Sometimes we can destroy our churches because of one single human being. We're constantly preaching to that person. The little sister I mentioned, I have preached to her for I don't know how many years. And if she has ever looked up at me, if she has ever smiled at me when I was a preaching, I am totally unaware of it. Have a guest evangelist. But the moment I step to the pulpit, And will not look up. Now I could destroy, destroy the Charleston church, taking pot shots at her. Somehow I have got to pray and say, God, eliminate that woman from my mind. Blind me, Lord, that I cannot see her. Praise the Lord. One single human being can take you down. You get revenge and hatred in your heart. I don't care how right you are. Vengeance and hatred will pour poison into your system that will absolutely not only destroy your body, but it will destroy your soul. In the fifth chapter, he goes home boasting. He's had a banquet with Esther. He's exalted. He's exhilarated. He walks out of that banquet. He's on the cloud nine until he sees Mordecai. And every joy that he has is gone. Immediately. Immediately. He goes home and talks to his wife. And finally he makes the statement here in verse 13 of chapter 5. Yet all of this, he was boasting of who he was and what he was and what he had and his wealth and, and everything. But he says, all of this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. <laughs> Praise the Lord. We can just be having the time of our life until brother so-and-so walks into the meeting. He's got your joy in his pocket <laughs> and probably glad of it. Oh, we can wipe ourselves out. God bless your heart. We have got to somehow get victory over people that agitate us and annoy us, even in personality crisis. I've got enough sense to know that everybody doesn't like to hear me preach. Everybody doesn't like my ways. Everybody doesn't like the way I do things. And somehow I've got to give them a little bit of room. <laughs> oh, God. God, help us. God, help us. <laughs> I pastor a sister that... Uh, Brother Whit, please don't go home and tell all this. <laughs> I pastor a sister. I preach to her. 
1113 times. And if Almighty God would take human form and stand before her and say, Quit cutting your hair, she wouldn't do it. Biggest tithe payer I got. I am not going to compromise, but I am, by God's help, I'm not going to mistreat that woman. I'm not going to make her a Sunday school teacher. I'm going to put her in my choir. God bless your hearts. But if she called me at 3 o'clock in the morning and say I'm on my way to the hospital, I'd get my clothes on just as quick as I would for Brother Red or Brother Greer and get over there. And it's been through prayer. I wouldn't have done it a few years ago. <laughs> oh, God's able to help us, folks. God's able to help us. You can get hatred and envy and strife in your heart against one individual and absolutely wipe you out. The reason Joseph was able to come to the position that God wanted him to do was because he was defeated and defeated and defeated and defeated and defeated, but he never allowed bitterness to come into his heart. And every situation he got himself in, he would stay with and do his very best. He would come to the top in his dimension where he was at. You think for one minute he didn't cry? Are you kidding? That guy has suffered death. But somehow he was able to keep his own spirit right. We have got to save ourselves in this untoward generation. While we are saving others, remember, when you're doctors of the Lord, you're dealing with some of the most contagious diseases that exist in the world. And that's bad spirits. Ugly, hateful spirits. They are contagious. And when you're ministering to someone like that, you can become affected yourself and become diseased yourself. We have got to save ourselves. Someone said, and I am closing, I don't want you to miss Brother Kuhn today. Wasn't that good yesterday? Preaching last night. Oh, out of this world. Out of this world. Amen. But uh, in closing, let me bring you this thought. Someone asked me one time, Brother Cole, what are you going to do when you've been wounded and hurt till you can't hardly breathe by somebody that does not ask you to forgive them? Again, let me say, save you have got to save yourself. I remember on one occasion, and I hope that you won't use this to hurt me. I, someone said, we're just, Brother Kennedy said, we're burying our souls. When I was at the height of my ministry, I became very bitter against an individual. I hated them. I got to where I hated them so badly 
that if someone would just mention their name to me, I would shake. I would shake. I hated them so bad. They wounded me, but by the grace of God and because of my ministry, I survived. I didn't get over that real quick. I didn't just snap my finger and I didn't hear just one sermon. I remember one time something happened and I wouldn't want to tell you enough of the story that you might figure out what happened because I don't want to hurt him. God being my witness, God being my witness, if they'd walk through that door right now, I would be glad to see them. I could put my arms around them and embrace them and be glad to see them. But it took a while. It took a while. I remember something happened. One of my precious friends called me on the phone and gave me some news. And I said, don't you tell me that unless you're absolutely sure. Don't you repeat to me a rumor. You check this out, and you be absolutely sure. So I said that you're giving it to me straight. And when you have, you call me back. And an hour later, they called me back. And it was right. And I went into what medical people call shock. I was gone. I don't know exactly what happened to me. I fell down in a chair. And my precious wife, who had already learned a great secret that I did not know, ministered to me. She took the book of Habakkuk and read it to me three times. I didn't even hear it the first two times she read it to me. And I remember before she started reading, I cried out with tears streaming down my face. I said, there is no justice. There is no justice. One of the greatest honors that can be bestowed upon a preacher was promised to me and taken away from me and given to my enemy. And I cried out, there is no justice. And my wife read to me, and then she revealed a secret to me that she had never told me. And I'm going to tell you something that Brother Tenney has never heard. I'm going to tell you something that the Foreign Missionary Board has never heard. I'm going to tell you something that I have never told, nor my wife has ever told, until six weeks ago. Because of the need, I told it for the first time. And my wife revealed to me a secret that she had learned of how to overcome bitterness when nobody says, please forgive me. I remember when I took my young wife, she was 23 years old, to Thailand. 
I had baptized the former secretary of the Presbyterian movement, Brother Boonmark Gittisan, here in the States. He was on a world tour, and I baptized him. He was a brilliant man. He had memorized the whole New Testament. He could quote the entire New Testament by memory. He had written many books. He was one of the most prestigious men in Thailand. And God allowed me to baptize him in Jesus' name, and he received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I never could figure it out until I told the story six weeks ago, and the brother that I told it to told me why. But he mistreated my wife severely. He imposed upon my wife customs of Thailand that were ancient, that were 100, 200-year-old customs. My wife was a very young and very beautiful woman. She is very gentle. She is very kind. She has never been rude to her enemies, never. And for the first four years that I was in Thailand, I learned later it was because, I believe, that Brother Boone Mark's wife was so unkind to him. She was a businesswoman, very successful businesswoman, and she ridiculed him as a preacher. She would ridicule him, ridicule him to the place that he would take as much as $10,000 and try to invest it. He'd lose it all. He was not a businessman, and uh, she would ridicule him even the more. And my wife lives and breathes for me and for my ministry. Her whole life is just around me. And obviously because of that, he began to persecute my wife because she was what he wanted, someone to love him and someone to be kind to him, and his wife was not. She ridiculed him. She was very kind to me, but she would ridicule him like he was a dog. And he imposed ancient customs on my wife. The first four years I was in Thailand, in his presence, my wife was not permitted to sit at a dinner table with me. The old ancient customs was for the men to be honored and for the wife to sit on the kitchen floor to eat her meal. And for four years, my wife sit on kitchen floors that were dirty in villages, bamboo huts where I would be honored to the high heavens. And my wife would go and sit on the kitchen floor. I remember going first being invited by the Presbyterian Church in the northern part of Thailand for a conference. And uh, it was right just 200 miles from Hanoi during the Vietnam War, right in what is called the Golden Triangle where Laos and Thailand and Burma joins its borders. We were at the end of the world. We were staying in a little house that did not have one piece of furniture in it. And the reason the house was available was because it was across the street from the crematory. And the Thai people were terrified of that house. They would not stay there. They said it was... And uh, that's where we were staying. 
But my wife had been left in Bangkok, and I'd come up there on my own in, our, in my car, driving Brother Boone Mark and driving some other brethren to that conference. And later, my wife was able to come. She got on an old DC-3 plane and flew all the way from Bangkok up to that airport, which was just a little shack in a, in a buffalo field. That plane landed in a buffalo field. The old plane was so old it had canvas seats. And she came, and he would not allow me to go and pick up my wife and my little girl that was five years old. And uh, she landed there all alone, not being able to speak the language or anything. And those pilots got off of the plane and saluted a Buddhist image and then flew back. She was there alone. Finally, was able to go and pick her up. He put us in that house. And then we wanted to visit some other churches. God was moving among the people. And I wanted to take my wife with me. She was so young. She was 23 years old, and Brenda was five. They said, no, she cannot sit in your car. She must stay here. And he forced me. He had a little Coleman stove from uh, America. He gathered it up, gathered up all the food, put it in the car. And I was hurting inside, but I knew that I was in no position to quarrel with him at that time because of his influence. Put everything in the car, took who he wanted to take, and left my wife and my baby in that house by herself. No food, no money. Two days later, she was very hungry, and she did not know the language yet. She finally learned the language very well. She didn't know the language, but she went to a little bamboo house nearby, pointed to her mouth that she was hungry. We had 146 Presbyterians baptized that week. It went on. I'm just giving you a little tip of the iceberg. It went on for four years. I remember one of the last things he did was came to the General Conference and he was kind of—he never did become a member of the United Pentecostal Church, but I loved him in many ways, and he was—he was influential, and I was trying to put the work ahead of ourselves. He came to the conference, and at this point, he had turned, and he was wanting to break the United Pentecostal Church and wanting to lead them astray, and later we had to just totally disfellowship him. At this time, he was still preaching baptism in Jesus' name and was very eloquent. He was very eloquent. And uh, he came to the conference and he said, Oh, Mrs. Cole, Mrs. Cole, here is a letter for you. And when she opened it, it was a letter from immigration for her to leave the country in 48 hours or she would be imprisoned. He had held that letter for seven days before he gave it to her, hoping that she would be imprisoned and that I would have to leave that conference and he would be able to do what he wanted to do. My wife said, No, Billy, this is a trick. I will go by myself. And she went to immigration by herself. 
God gave us great victory in that conference. Sixty-three denominal preachers received the Holy Ghost and was baptized in Jesus' name while my wife was at immigration. God wonderfully helped her. After this had gone on, I could tell you story after story, but our time is gone. One day she looked at me with tears streaming down her face. She said, Billy, I hate that man. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. It was then that she found a secret that she never told me about. She began to seek God, and God spoke to her and said, you pray for Boonmark every day for one hour. And she said, Billy, who was not aware of it, but every day I have prayed for Boonmark for one hour. And she said, God took all that hatred out of my heart. God delivered me. God, give me victory over that bitterness. The last time I ever seen Boonmark, he left our fellowship and went off into false doctrine. But he came to the church when I went there to preach just before he died. He brought his old Bible. He said, Achan, he called me Achan. Achan, would you let me say just a word? He got up and he said, I'm an old man. I'm almost 90 years old. And I'm going to die very soon. And I want to die. But before I die, I have to ask Sister Cole to forgive me. He said, I have my old Bible that I have carried for years, and it was worn out. He said, Mrs. Cole, Ma'am Cole, he called her, would you take my Bible? When I die, I want you to have my Bible. Will you forgive me for the way I treated you? She said, oh, that's all right, Brother Boonmark. She said, Ajahn, I forgave you many years ago. Brother, we have got to save ourselves. We have got to save ourselves. The person I told you about in my own experience has never asked me to forgive him. But there's not a cloud in the sky. There's not a cloud in the sky. Would you lift your hands and let's call upon the Lord today. If you feel led of God to go to someone and lay your hands upon them, pray for them. Take your liberty. Let's be used of the Lord to pray for each other today. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, you're able to help us. You're able to help us to save ourselves, oh God. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 
Let's call on the name of the Lord, brother. Let's stand and call upon the name of the Lord. If you feel that of God to lay your hands upon someone and pray for them, feel that of the Lord. Let the Holy Ghost use this today to minister to each other. It's not late yet. The hour is not late. Let's call upon the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Just let the tears flow, brethren. Don't be ashamed of your tears. It's very apostolic to, to have tears. Just let the tears flow. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus.